0: I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker.
1: And I'm Matt Luter. You're not watching As the World Turns. You're listening to The Great Concavity.
0: Oh, Oh, very nice, Matt. Uh, This is episode 31 of The Great Concavity, and Matt Luder, thank you for that lovely Pale King reference for our introduction. I recently finished uh, my reread of The Pale King, and, and that lands in a nice place for me. Welcome to the show, man.
1: Glad to be here. Thank
2: you all for having me. Again. We're back after a, a <laughs> bit of a hiatus, Dave.
0: Yeah, sorry, uh, sorry everybody. Our summertime uh, scheduling got a little bit mixed up, and People were on holidays and it just got a little bit, a bit hard to schedule something, but uh, finally we're back. Um, so sorry, sorry about the wait. I know this is like a, a free thing that comes out that you don't have to pay for, but we're still sorry uh, that our service quality has, has been low lately. <laughs>
2: I'm, I'm about 50% sorry. Okay. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. So if we were getting paid uh, to do this, it might be a bit of a, we might be more on the hook, I guess. <laughs> Not even then. Not even then. Uh, but anyways, uh, Matt Luther, so... you you have been on the show before, uh, kind of a, kind of briefly, for episode seventeen point one, which came out last year after DFW sixteen, and we had you for one of the about ten minute mini interviews. Yes. Um. So now you get to we get to have you for the full uh, hour to two hours. And we're very psyched about
1: that. I, I feel like I in. feel like I've arrived. That's what this must mean.
0: <laughs> you didn't feel like that last time. you were just like, uh i got I got a little taste but got
1: it got about not... halfway there and and and
0: <laughs> maybe that's what you're halfway you're halfway to like Great Jones street level fame.
1: okay, uh, we're talking to Lillo too now, fame. all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so,
2: um, let me back it up a little bit and say Matt Luter is obviously a Wallace scholar and I think has presented at every DFW conference. Is that that right? is
1: true? Uh, four for four, oh,
2: I nice swear, four for four. Yeah. And he is also the author of Understanding Jonathan Latham. Do you say Latham or Leth? Uh, I think it is Letham. Yeah. Letham. I think uh
0: I think from my presentation two years ago I said Letham about eighty times and then I think I got corrected after and I felt like a a dillweed. You, know?
2: you should say Letham. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember
0: and... uh meeting Matt Luter that year in the in the bar after and I was really nervous because I just, someone told me that he came out with, you know, the the Marshall Boswell equivalent of understanding Jonathan Lethem and uh I thought I was gonna get you know, torn in half from my analysis of uh, of Chronic City
1: and oh. its relation
0: to Wallace, but Matt was very cool to me, so uh, we became friends. So thanks for that, Matt.
1: It, it was a good paper, and uh, <laughs> good talking with you about about Lethem and Wallace and all manner of things.
2: All manner. So Matt Matt has also published on other, I would say, American writers like DeLillo and Amiri Baraka and. Who, who else matt you've published on a lot you consider yourself an americanist sure
1: that's that's fair mm-hmm. to say uh Brett Easton ellis uh a little bit and then um some southern writers as well uh willie morris ellen douglas uh yeah so
2: are you from the south i am
1: originally from from mississippi i yeah. uh, grew up in a little town called laurel and then uh Went to college in Jackson, uh, Millsaps College, and then uh, last summer moved back to Jackson. I'm teaching at an independent high school uh, in Jackson.
2: And did, should we talk about the Shit Town podcast later? You, oh, that's uh, a good idea. You, yeah. to you
1: know, I, I still, <laughs> I'm I'm so behind on <laughs> things. Right, I, I hear great stuff. I got to give it a try. So, no, this talking about it with you, Matt, will give me a great like reason to to uh, make it a priority. <laughs>
2: Well, you should, you should go uh, listen to it, and then we'll have you on again and talk about <laughs> it. Because, uh, I would we'll love have, to talk about you it. You
0: know what we'll do? We'll have you on for the year-in-review episode because we would naturally talk about S-Town in that episode anyways, and it wouldn't be off-topic. So we could there bring you, you in for a special guest slot. Oh, see, Maybe now— get Rob Short, too, who's also from the cell. Now, now you're— in, some, uh, some insider. Ah, uh, now
1: you're info. just really, really making me commit to it, which is fine. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs>
2: So the, the main thing that I've really wanted to talk to you about today was not another podcast it was about the, um, the paper that you presented at the most recent David Foster Wallace conference in Illinois. And the title of that paper was me and Wallace's shadow creating space for the personal and writing about Wallace. That's right. And I'm going to try to summarize it really briefly and then I'll let you correct me. Um, <laughs> but the paper it's pretty much about this split between kind of professional academics and kind of kind of amateur writing that pops up around Wallace especially and that's usually a little more personal and you divide it kind of between Argumentative writing about Wallace and non-argumentative like commentary around Wallace but then try to find space around that. So maybe that's not a great summary but maybe you could um, do it a little bit better than I could. Then. No,
1: I, I, I think that totally works, Matt. Um, I think what really got me started thinking along these lines was um, I think second and third years maybe of the conference there was a lot of discussion about sort of State of the field, uh, what this annual conference is for, that kind of thing. And and I heard the occasional comment um, th- that seemed to speak to, if not a divide, at least a divide is too strong a word. It's not like there's a schism, but there's a question out there about, you know, when we are doing commentary about Wallace, does it take its best form when it is, you know, taking the form of the, the, the peer-reviewed article in a peer-reviewed journal that um, is going to have great depth, is going to have great insight and nuance, but which perhaps is not equally available to all readers. Um, right. you know uh, not because Wallace readers can't get it because Wallace readers are you know pretty sharp uh, <laughs> readers because you kind <laughs> of have to be to read loss, but because there are things like academic paywalls that limit people's availability to, um, to, to a lot of new scholarship. And then on the other side, you know, maybe there's a lot to be said for um, commentary that is less traditionally argumentative in an academic sense, but that is getting at um, what the experience of reading really is like and what it does for people. Um, And I think we're in a there has for a while been, I think, at times a, a false dichotomy between like, oh, if you're doing analytical literary criticism that is argumentative, you have to be objective. You have to be impersonal. You have to approach the text as, you know, an art object that you remain a little detached from. And a lot of that yes.
0: clinical dispassionate well, activity.
1: Yeah. And, and a lot of that goes back to, you know, sort of new critical things that say the proper study of literature is the literary work and the way a literary work operates within the world and within readers lives like that happens. But that's not what criticism is. And mm-hmm. um, I think one thing I was trying to do with the paper is say, well, first off, there are critiques out there of the idea of the effective of fallacy and, and things like that that have said for so long we need to be detached as critics. There's also a really interesting um, tradition of kind of autobiographical criticism that manages to make um, – really interesting arguments and do interesting commentary by seeking to kind of blur some of these lines and acknowledge readers have experiences that they bring to the table when uh, reading a powerful work of literature and to kind of sweep all that under the rug in favor of critical dispassionate critical detachment Feels to a lot of people kind of disingenuous feels to a lot of people kind of even harmful Um, And so that's a lot of what I think I was trying to get at with the paper is hey Might this be a false dichotomy and isn't it possible that actually we're already beginning to see pieces of wallace criticism that do this kind of stuff really well, too and in a way, it's a new thing. In a way, it's not a new thing at all because there is a, 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 a tradition that's out there. I mentioned in the, the paper folks like uh, Jane Tompkins, who since the 80s and 90s has been doing autobiographical criticism. Um mm-hmm. So there's a tradition there that I think is interesting. Well, and
2: what what strikes me really interesting about that is what you said earlier about the conference and and about like the second one, you know, we had this panel on this very issue and what what struck me there was that, you know, you have people there who the conference is sort of like a p- personal pilgrimage for them. Yeah. And they're not they're not really trying to be Uh, an objective critic at all in fact the complete opposite Mm -hmm. you know they're they're there because they are um you know an amateur but they're just a fan and they're really in in looking for their like people and that's sort of partly me but partly not and it's like you can't really be both right you have to be one or the other in some (laughs) ways and and there's other people who are like you know they do a paper on um delillo or franzen or wallace and to them this is just another conference that they're just passing through right 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 and they they're super dispassionate about it and in fact we get a lot of those papers that come in and you know it's the person's going to come for one time and give one paper and it's probably going to be pretty critical of wallace Hmm. and we you know to see that in the real world like in the flesh is interesting in a lot of ways. And I have, I have a lot of questions for you, but about that, that sort of binary, like it does seem like super uncool or less, I don't know, prestigious in a way to be the, the fan or the amateur. Yeah. Yeah, It's like, but the the interesting thing too, was that the conference was the first conference I've ever been to that had a sort of place for these, you know, non-academics and like a creative component. It's very rare.
1: Yeah. um, And, you know, I'm not someone who's doing the kind of stuff that, that Corey Baldoff is or that Chris Ayers is, or or Barbara Balfour or some of these folks who are creating art pieces. You know, I'm still yeah. someone who is who is writing to create the commentary, the criticism that I want to do. But I think another reason that I've felt attuned to to the false dichotomy thing is um, it has to do with sort of where I, my own sort of situation personally as a critic, um, as, as a scholar. Uh, I have a doctorate. I've published. I've taught at college level. Right now, I teach at an independent high school. There are people who would say, eh, by some definitions, maybe this, you know, you're not an academic. You're not currently affiliated with an institution of higher education there are some people who would say hey you're you're out there you're going to conferences you're submitting articles to places you're part of a scholarly conversation so of course you are and mm-hmm. you know i've sort of experienced that i've experienced both of those reactions and so like i as a person <laughs> kind of don't fit in <laughs> in some of the the in some of the false dichotomy kind of stuff we're talking about. Cause like by some definitions, I'm an academic by some definitions, I'm not a non-academic, but I'm some, th- you know, it's, it gets hard to define.
2: Well, and Dave and I are in the same boat. Sure. Yeah. In that, you know, we're not traditional academics in any sense. And really to me, one of the questions I wrote on the first page of your paper is like, you know, the idea of an independent scholar, who is successful is really rare Yeah, or is taken seriously, like the independent scholar thing is sort of a, uh, a joke, until you bring up a guy named um, Birmingham who wrote this book about Ulysses and uh, I want you to tell us a little bit about that book, the most dangerous book.
1: Sure, um, well this is a guy who wrote a really well-researched book on the publication history of James Joyce's Ulysses um, I am blanking right now on exactly where he uh, has been employed, but he's he's not an independent scholar; he's an adjunct faculty member, which is That's which it, is yeah. the reality for a whole lot of people, right? And um, he won a pretty prestigious literary criticism prize for this book, which it's worth noting was on a popular press, was not on uh, a university press. I mean, it was on Penguin, hmm. and. Right. Um, kind of boldly <laughs> used this acceptance speech of his to say hey i'm the first adjunct faculty member ever to win this award and let's talk about exploitation and some academic labor issues just right Whoa, now
0: that's tight. <laughs> that's punk rock
1: <laughs> it it really kind of is and and yeah. and, it, and it, it's not just a rant he he is sort of he gets into like let's talk about the ways that um Conditions of employment, conditions of people's individual lives are going to shape the kind of criticism they do, even if it is really traditional criticism. Um, The way he puts it is uh, that a book for Penguin on a single author is something that very few like people counseling job candidates would really advise Because, you know, single author books and single author dissertations can be a really tough sell for hiring committees. Mm. And because um, he makes the point that to some people, uh, a book on Penguin is not an amazing opportunity to get a bigger readership. It's, well, that's a book that didn't go through peer review. So he's kind of getting at, like, in a weird way this award-winning book that's actually sold pretty well for a piece of literary criticism is a thing that no one would advise him to write and in some ways is kind of an insane thing for someone in his position to write. So, um, and I was, yeah, and and that was kind of informing my paper a little too. The idea that like, um, the fact that, go ahead.
2: I, I was going to say the economics of it is, is kind of what he's getting at with the adjunct faculty right. thing, is that for literary criticism to thrive, it can no longer just rely on this old-fashioned system of you get a PhD, you get a tenure-track job, you publish a book, and then you're the expert. Right. It's like, well, there if, if we just rely on that, there's like two people who could write about walls. Yeah. Or four <laughs> you know, I mean, then you're excluding this whole other lived world yeah. people who actually are writing and publishing on
1: it. Yeah. Um, and some of, and, and there's been fantastic writing about Wallace in ways that kind of doesn't fit the mold. If you're thinking about, well, the best writing on this author is going to be writing that makes the best CV line that appears in the best journal. You know, those, those are important things. Like we, there, there is really great, Writing about Wallace that has come out of peer-reviewed articles and peer-reviewed journals, I don't at all want to sound like I'm bashing that. After all, like, Wallace Society is putting together exactly that. Um, <laughs> but if we think of it as the only type of of writing about Wallace that matters, you know, we, we're limiting the voices that get heard and to get read.
2: I want to uh, take a step back to the the Jane Tompkins essay you mentioned a minute ago, yeah. um, because I think that that's really important. And she makes a good case for this kind of personal writing, um, which she kind of separates out as, you know, traditional literary criticism in the past. And this is going back pre, you know, 1980s was really invested in that argumentative style that she associates with this like kind of encoded masculinity you call it and that was for her in mind very much a feminist response in order to kind of push back on that and say you know the personal response is not so much argumentative but you know it's just different and i I want you to speak to that a little bit
1: sure um she's at tompkins absolutely sort of frames her whole argument in that essay, Me and My Shadow, um, as in many ways a feminist argument, she quotes pretty widely uh, in there from a from a speech by Ursula Le Guin. Um, and what she is suggesting throughout, it, it, particularly in the, the borrowings from Le Guin that she's using, is the idea, a contrast between criticism that is distancing and criticism or commentary that can be about relationship and that can draw connections instead of just competing uh, and, and you know, replacing the metaphor of like competing ideas with a conversation. And even as, you know, a lot of like writing classrooms, you know, use the metaphor of, of you're entering a conversation a lot uh, mm-hmm. in practice among Professional critics. I mean, it can be. I mean, I remember the occasional hearing the occasional um, professor in grad school uh, framing a response, casual, even in casual conversation, to um, a critic with whom they disagreed, as "Well, that jerk thinks so and so," <laughs> and 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 uh, and what, what's the old? Is it? I'm afraid I'm going to misquote this now, but there's the George Orwell line about disagreements in academia get so nasty because the stakes are so low. <laughs> yeah, so,
2: heard that. That's true.
1: that, that may, that may be one of these things where like, it just gets attributed to George Orwell because he's a guy <laughs> who said some great stuff. I'm not Him sure Mark exactly if something. that is. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, like that quote about the internet from Mark Twain mm. that goes around the internet. <laughs> <Yeah>. Um <laughs>
2: Well, um, the, the Jane Tompkins thing—the thing that really perked my ears up about sure. that about that point was that um, in Wallace studies, this is really where the the feelings get hurt and people's um, attention is pulled is to personal writing about Wallace. It's not really the argumentative stuff about what he's doing with irony or TV or. Uh, literary studies in general, it's really the personal stuff that gets a lot of the the eyeballs. And that Mm. to me as defined by Tompkins is, you know, the opposite of this patriarchal oppressive dialogue. And it is really the opposite to me of like what gets pushed into this lit bro conversation. (laughs) And, you know, if you're saying the one opsmanship of an argumentative, you know, uh, Argument or criticism is really got some encoded masculinity in it too well, then what does it say then if it's men who are then taking on this personal approach and then being sort of derided for it as being well, they're so passionate about it, they're just lit bros
1: i I think there's a couple things going on here um, one is I think we do have to acknowledge that one thing true of both very traditional criticism and the more personal the more autobiographical stuff that is more commentary is both of those can be done really well or really poorly and when for instance if you are a if you're submitting to a journal and you're getting readers reports back or if you're writing anonymous readers reports um Ultimately, what is being discussed there is the content of a claim and the support for it, and the originality of it. and And I, I've gotten a bad reader's report before that felt weirdly personal, but but it wasn't because the person has no idea who I am. I was an anonymous submitter. Right. What's a little different is critique of a. More personal piece of criticism, you know, which I, I believe can be like any other type of writing done really, really well, or really, really poorly. If one of those is not that good, then it's hard to speak that without, it's, it's hard to say I'm following, I understand your experience, but this argument or this claim coming out of it seems weak because it then feels like, um, a judgment not on the piece of writing but on the person and on the experience right um does that does that get at what you're <laughs> what you're asking i mean i, about? Mean,
2: ki- I mean kind of like where the, the idea of that opposition though that you're setting up to say i'm gonna judge your writing at all like what's the point of of even doing that of being of you saying well this was good writing or not unless you are you know impaneled to you know be on a, sure. a journal or on a you know conference committee that's picking sure. papers but otherwise i mean if you're just on twitter and someone posts something and you're like that sucks i mean it devolves <laughs> very quickly into like right you know this the same kind of ritualized opposition that you're talking there about yeah. let's just shut up these voices because i don't think it's personally very good and it's and like well you're that's your opinion dude
1: and i i think there's a there's a difference to be articulated between um this does not match my experience and because this does not match my experience this writer doesn't get it and and i think there have been some negative responses to you know some some uh, some internet articles on, on Wallace, some, some, sure. some of them are, some of them have struck me as really thoughtful. Some of them has, have struck me as less thoughtful kind of hot takes. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, I think there is a difference between the response. Um, I disagree and the response, this reader, this writer just doesn't get it. Um, they clearly don't understand Wallace, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I disagree is, I think, a fair and often useful contribution to a conversation. Um,
2: but, but in your paper, I mean, you are kind of taking a position that, um, you know, this other type of, I don't know, autobiographical criticism or whatever can be good or you know you're making an argument in the paper right
1: yeah sure sure um i mean yeah it's an argument that kind of says criticism can take multiple forms Mm -hmm. and and uh where i was kind of linking the stuff about autobiography and the stuff about academic labor is both of those sorts of lines of thinking have to fundamentally acknowledge that the people who write criticism of any sort are not uh, robot brains, but they are, they are people with, with bodies and experiences and economic needs or lack of needs um, and part of large institutions or small institutions. And that those things all actually deeply inform um, not just like how much writing time you have and stuff like that. But on some level, like on on certain levels, the content. Mm
2: -hmm. And, you know, one thing, or or no institution is what I was going to add to what you just said. I, I I think that I find Wallace studies being in a unique position right now, um, where in a way we're grappling with things that a lot of other kind of literary groups are not, are not as a, as profoundly with and as deeply as, as we are right now. And, um, you know, this kind of spills over a bit into our conversation about, um, the diversity committee that we've established in the wall of society mm-hmm. and a lot of the, um, kind of voices that we're trying to amplify with that. And I, I find us, um, in a way kind of, just trying to mark our own path you know and go out forge our own direction without really looking at a lot of these other contexts but in the other on the same hand i do find it useful to look at what other societies have done i was going to ask you know what has been your experience with other conferences or other kind of <laughs> literary societies
1: let's see um Only other author society I'm part of is, is the DeLillo society. Yeah. Yeah, Which you Dave are also a member of now. Right. Yeah.
0: yeah. It's a pretty low bar to entry though. Right. Like you don't have to pay any fees or anything (laughs) like that. It's just like uh, send an email. I want to be a member. Cool. You're in. And then you like it, like it on Facebook.
2: (laughs) Yeah. That's That's great. That's great.
1: And, um, and as far as other conferences, I do think, well, I think there's a couple things that make the Wallace Conference different. One is we have so many people coming year after year, which is a community building thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also creates a sense of a continued conversation. Um, I've, I've, there's no other conference where I have. Afterwards, you know, traded so many papers that I couldn't hear because I was at another panel via email. Right. (laughs) Um, I I have a a really much broader sense that people are, are listening to each other and actually sort of reading each other's works and not thinking of it solely as as a CV line. Now, again, to speak to how like one's own situation affects all of that. There are conferences I went to in graduate school solely for a CV line Um, (laughs) because what I'm doing now, you know, does not, I mean, I'm not looking at like a tenure clock. Yeah. Any conference I go to, any article I write is happening because that is what I want to be doing. Yeah. And so my buy-in to the conference, to the society, to all of this is a little bit more, um, Self-guided and I think a little more enjoyable and and maybe even a little more of an intense connection just because it's something I'm totally opting into like with no um, expectations that it is like advancing a career in a really mm-hmm. highly specific way that like getting yeah. one more article before the 10-year clock is up does,
2: you know. Mm-hmm well and i am the same way and that i i really have nothing to lose you know if i go and like present some total garbage as a paper uh you know it's it's not going to go back to my department <laughs> chair and i'm going to be humiliated at my next staff meeting or something uh and, and you and you mentioned that in the paper and that um you know as this sort of economic situation evolves uh, there are going to be more scholars that have more kind of autonomy and agency to do, you know, whatever they want or write about whatever they want. Uh, but in a way they're sort of also hamstrung. I mean, what, what's the way forward there?
1: I, uh, gosh, mm. <laughs> solve it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. In the next couple of minutes. Um, no, that's, that's a totally, yeah, that's, that's a hard question. Um, it is a very liberating thing, and uh, because uh, yeah, like I'm I'm pretty self-directed in terms of of what I want to be writing about, researching, so forth. It does have its limitations. Um, it can be, I mean, most visible one for me on a daily basis is I have access to some really good library resources. I don't have access to the same library resources that I would have connected to, um, a large university or even a, a great small college where, you know, the, uh, the library is a hundred yards away from my office or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and you, you used the term independent scholar earlier, and we're kind of getting at how that is a weird term. I, um, I uh okay uh, so I I applied or considered applying for something a couple of years ago that was an opportunity for higher ed faculty and I sent an email before I even did an application and just said hey here's how here's what's up I have taught at higher ed, higher ed level recently I teach in an independent high school now, here's my background, here's the brief version of the CV, would I be considered for this? And the response I got was, we would consider you as an independent scholar. And I I actually wound up not applying because I got that answer. Because I I really dislike that term that much. Because, (laughs) because, Because that's not an accurate reflection of what I am. I am connected to and an educational institution full time, you know, I, I teach in a K-12 school. Um, and so there's a way and, and some people would say I'm over intellectualizing just this one little term, this one little label. But I'm like, no, um, if you say independent scholar, subtext of that is the teaching that you're doing every day kind of doesn't count or the yeah. educational institution that you're part of kind of doesn't count. And I'm like, no, you know, I teach, I teach five classes every day. I have several dozen students. So yeah. Independent scholar kind of doesn't, we need a better term for one thing.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that that's one of the many like failures of academia. And, you know, one reason why I wanted to talk to you about some of this was just that, uh, it seems like we're at a unique kind of inflection point where some of these, some of these conditions are really liberating, you know, as you mentioned Mm -hmm. for yourself, as you know, for Dave and I, we, we love, uh, I mean, personally, I'm I'm not going to speak for Dave, but I'll say for me personally, (laughs) I I, I love having the autonomy to just, you know, write on whatever I want as if I were a tenured faculty, even though I'm not, even though I will never be, but I could, I could write and publish on, theoretically on anything without those constraints. Um, But on the same hand, there is uh, an even more kind of stratified, uh, you know, audience within the Academy and without Uh the Academy. Uh, And and a lot of it, you know, you you narrowed in on some of it earlier when you were talking about peer review is more important than like publishing with like Penguin Random House. And it's like, really? Random House is... (laughs) You know, but it's true. I think in academia, as long as like you could publish with any small university press, as long as it was peer reviewed, hmm. and that would be valued above all else. And you know, why is that? Because you know, we've if you've peer reviewed stuff, you know, like it's not as it's not like the end all be all. Mm-hmm. Or right? Is it? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I I do wonder how much. I mean. There are indications that that things are changing. When you think about, um, you know, I am still a member of the MLA uh, of the Modern Language Association. Mm-hmm. Haven't been to the big convention in a few years, um, but you know, they they have projects going to kind of reevaluate. You know, does everyone who is getting a doctorate in the humanities field or in a language field? Really need to write the same kind of dissertation. If if you are, I mean, if you are wanting to do s- stuff that is not strictly within the walls of academia, but wants to speak to bigger audiences, broader communities, then then maybe the one size fits all dissertation starts to go away. Um, I mean, there are, there are ways that this kind of stuff is changing in small ways and and I would love to see it sort of go bigger. You, you hear about, um, I, I know, I know a few people who have mentioned want uh, doing tenure files and wanting to, and being asked to display some form of outreach or communication with a community that is outside of the given school. Um, and if if places are really starting to sort of put their money where their mouth is and valuing that and saying we want to affirm that, not just it would be nice, but we want to affirm that actively, then then maybe, yeah, I mean you're 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 statement mad about maybe being at a tipping point right now. Maybe so.
0: So prior to giving this uh, this presentation, Matt Luter, at the conference, I remember you sort of suggesting that you had maybe a, a slightly higher level of anxiety uh, in, in yeah. presenting <laughs> the material. And uh, and I thought that was an interesting statement because, I mean, you're a very bright and articulate guy. So whatever you come up with is going to be awesome. But the nature of this content, you're, you're worried that, like, what were your specific anxieties in in presenting what you presented at a conference well, like this, the Wallace Conference?
1: Sure, um, I mean the the paper I was giving is I don't know if like polemical would be the right word for it because it's not like I was you know raising a sword in the air and and <laughs> you know let's go let's go storm the ivory towers. It wasn't that, but. It felt a little more, I think, I think what it was is I felt like I was more directly entering Mm. a sort of hotly contested question than I think I've ever done in a, uh, in a conference paper before. Mm. Also, um, going back, backtracking just a little bit to, um, what is different, I think about the Wallace conference is people actually go to each other's panels (laughs) <laughs> and that doesn't happen you know, at maybe, MLA. Um I have I have given a conference paper to an audience of 2. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. That's quite yeah small. And 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 there are conferences um particularly if they are located in large cities that are, you know, tourist sites. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've known of conferences where people, you know, sort of go present their paper maybe go to another panel and then and then sightsee and and it's hard i'm not gonna sit here and fault somebody for that because you know everybody needs downtime and downtime (laughs) takes different forums for different people and that's that's great but the observation
0: here is that like the people by and large who come to this conference year after year are like extremely interested in what the community has to say and they'll go to every talk they can that kind of thing yeah
1: Yeah. And so I knew, you know, I didn't know how many people were going to be in the room, but I knew it wasn't going to be two. I knew that there was going to be, I knew that there was going to be an audience because panels at this conference have an audience. The other thing is, is the, the, and, and the latter part of the paper, I did sort of get pretty personal about what reading Wallace has meant to me over the last several years, because I think the, Well, and, and I sort of went at it from the perspective of like, if I'm going to say this kind of stuff is valuable and we kind of need more of it in the conversation, like I got to put my money where I'm at this, I got (laughs) to like, okay, let's go there. We're going to do this. And so, and so for me, it meant like, okay, so we're going to talk about the fact that, um, you know, the the sort of work setting I have had has changed over the years pretty mm-hmm. drastically from graduate school to to um, higher ed faculty member, not tenure track, but full time mm. to, um, you know, uh, a K-12 setting now. And there are pros and cons to all of them. You know, I don't feel like one is in any way inherently uh better or worse than the other, Mm -hmm. but the way a lot of people think about sort of who gets to be part of the conversation, the way, you know, the, the kind of gatekeeping that can happen Mm -hmm. is the kind of thing that can sort of conspire to, you know, bring about feelings of, of, of disappointment and of failure. And so, one thing I talked a good bit about in the paper was, you know, I read the D.T. Max biography of Wallace when I was sort of suspecting, like, yep, this is not going to work out. Uh, I was on a year-to-year contract where I was working at in, in a higher ed setting, mm-hmm. and you know, yeah, coming in that it's a weird thing to be like, okay. I'm teaching higher ed. I'm getting, I'm doing exactly what I went to school for. I'm creating my own classes. Conversations in them are really good. I have really strong students. And yet that's like over before it begins after three <laughs> years. Right. And you so, did, yeah. and so I, I remember reading the, the max biography, just being mm-hmm. taken with how many false starts Wallace had, you know, mm-hmm. he was an adjunct somewhere for a while. Emerson. Um, what's that?
2: At Emerson. At Emerson.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, there are references in uh, the Max biography to him taking jobs because he needed health insurance. And so right. there are <laughs> there are lots of false starts. There are lots of um, moments of failure. I mean, the, the whole thing with signifying rappers sort of making it depressed just because he really wanted to feel like he was still a writer. Mm. You know, when he had two books to his name already, like, <laughs> yeah. I take comfort that's... too in
0: that line where in the biography where it says there there was a point in Wallace's life where he thought about just moving up to Canada and becoming a high school teacher. Do you guys remember that <laughs> that line? <laughs> I <laughs> do remember that, David. and I my did gosh. a huge fist pump. Obviously, because <laughs> that's my life being a high school teacher yeah. in
1: Canada. But sure, mm-hmm. and and so. Um, And it got me thinking also, I didn't talk about this in the paper much. This was one of these things that got left on the cutting room floor of that paper. But, um, I mean, there's been some writing out there about the difficulties that people have in the last few years with sort of leaving academia behind because the job market is as bad as it is and how it is a very emotional thing. It's an emotional process. Um, to sort of work really hard toward one thing and then start to see that it may just not be in the cards yeah. the metaphor people are using like crazy right now is um, well the job market is is comparable to a lottery now and just right. mm-hmm. you know and and that feels weird to me for a couple of reasons one somebody who does get a job in a terrible job market did not do so by luck they did so because they did a lot of hard work and a lot of good work. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I've I've known people who have gotten jobs recently who are like, yeah, luck has a little bit to do with it. And, And that may be true, but it's not only that by any means. The other thing that I do take from that metaphor that I think is really important is you can be irritated that you didn't win the lottery. You can be annoyed that you didn't win the lottery. You can be you can be annoyed that somebody else won the lottery and you didn't. <laughs> but you cannot be ashamed that you didn't win the lottery. Hmm. And um you know that's I think a, a lot point. of I mean that's a great
2: point and that I think there's there's a lot of um judging that goes on um and, and like you said it could be everyone who ticks every box except for that. And then it's like, well, no, you don't also have to be ashamed and accept some other um, label like independent scholar when that (laughs) really is not a great, that's not a great descriptor. And, I mean, going back to what you're saying about how people, you know, in our little um, niche world of wall Studies go to all of the panels and stuff, we have tons of people who buy these books. Yeah. and, And people who actually read an academic book from... Uh, an academic publisher and will buy a journal issue. And I mean, yeah. this is just, this kind of stuff is like so valuable and precious to me mm-hmm. that I don't want to do anything to squash that. And it's like, can everyone just get on board with um, being cool to each other? I mean, is that too much <laughs> to add? I, like, I mean, I mean, and, and it's like, it's true. What you also talk a lot about is just like the lived experience of being a human being in here and like not being afraid to, you know, what you're doing right now is like brave by going on a podcast and like talk about your personal experience, mm-hmm. talk about, you know, there's a lot of academics who that is anathema to them right? because <laughs> th- there's no need for it. It's actually detrimental to their career in order to, to do that.
1: You're making me right. think about, there's a, there's a Jane Tompkins interview, um, where she basically owns up to I didn't start doing any of the autobiographical stuff until I had tenure. And she's right, very yeah. direct about it and right. just says I was in a position where no one could really judge me in a, in a super like, official, meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And, and no, yeah, I, I, I totally see. Yeah. Like the, the go ahead.
2: And and when you have tenure, you don't have to prove yourself like that's it. You've sort of proved yourself already. And now you can go on and be this kind of complete human being where, you know, you're free to talk freely on panels. You're able to, like I say, direct whatever dissertations you want to or not. Mm-hmm. And there, that, that freedom that comes with it, I think, is very appealing to anyone involved in, you know, the literary world of academia that I've seen even marginally. So is that that freedom is almost incomprehensible to not have it. Um, once. You yeah, it. yeah. 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 Uh, so that wasn't so much a question, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, but I, I do think, um, you know, I, I, talked about this uh, last weekend. I was on a panel f- on Skype at the Oz Wallace conference yeah, in, uh, yeah. in Australia well, we talked a lot about this issue, and I probably uh, should have thanked you in my acknowledgments of the speech, but my Skype crapped out at the end of it uh, but, <laughs> well, uh, but I, was, I had I had your paper very much on my mind whenever we were talking about that
1: well, and I was following the uh, the, the Twitter conversations i know yes. I know Nick was uh, doing a lot of uh, coverage of the the conference, and I remember seeing the topic coming up of access to the archive and, and just how there are, I mean, to bring it back for us for a second to just sort of the academic labor question. I mean, not everyone's going to have equal access to travel money. Um, Yes. And so I was interested to see that that's coming up even sort of specifically in reference to that one thing that has become really like a really central, Feature of Wallace studies, like the 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 desire to visit that archive and the wealth of new stuff in, in scholarship that's coming out of it, and I was also interested in just seeing that that the conversation about access and about sort of, you know, we can call it an academic labor issue, like was coming up uh, at that conference. Also,
2: I mean, in a way, yes, when you phrase it that way, it makes okay. sense. Um, but but when you phrase it as an inequality. I don't think it's an inequality to say that, you know, a book exists in this one library on another continent sure, and, sure. and I exist on this continent. And I was like, <laughs> well, I'm I guess, technic- <laughs> I guess technically that isn't inequality, but it's like, it's, it's <laughs> not really, that's not really the issue. I mean, it, it was a broader issue about like, well, these people who, you know, are on a more traditional academic path have gotten the funding to travel. Right? Yeah. And, and that is, um, that is an academic labor issue uh, for our little world of Wallace studies in particular, where pretty much all of the archives are right here in Austin, Texas. And if you, I don't know how you could write an academic book on Wallace and not visit. It would be very difficult to do that if you want to even mention the archives and not get some kind of funding to go there. Yeah. Hmm. Um, But, but really the bigger issue that we talked about on that panel was about um, this kind of very issue of like, what, how did the society come to be? You know, what was the genesis behind that? And, you know, it was me and um, Mike Miley, and he is, um, I I think he's comparable to uh, your situation in where he has a terminal degree and has uh, published with an academic press and, um, you know, is uh, I think you even cite him in your paper as an example of, yes. you know, yeah. is that f- fair to call him an an independent scholar? No, he's not an independent <laughs> scholar, you know, but he's also not like this you'd have old to, fashioned uh, style, whatever.
1: You'd have to ask him if he if he hates the term as much as I do.
0: Um. <laughs> <laughs> it almost has the undertone of like pariah, you know, pariah scholar, like you're you're somehow on the outside. Because you couldn't land like the lottery job or something like that,
1: and I and well, I think the weirdest thing about it is it takes like two incredibly positive words, and the linking of the use <laughs> that, like yeah that's even ungodly it. monster <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, and you know I think there's there's an interesting history in it and that there um, used to be scholars who were independently wealthy. Right. and did not did not you know the the acad- academic scene paid way less than their trust fund did so they they could live the <laughs> same sort of academic life in paris and vienna than and have access to the same libraries and things because they were independently wealthy and therefore it was not uh i don't know it was not an epithet to call them an independent scholar you A know flat, uh... yeah. Well, (laughs) I mean, no, I think it was like they were... And even when I first worked at an academic press in New York, and it was still in the 1990s, believe it or not, um, we had a couple of books published with an independent scholar. And that was rare for, you know, an academic university press to publish an independent scholar. But uniformly, these writers were elderly women who had tons of money and were able to travel around to all these different libraries they 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 never could have got the kind of academic funding even if they had had tenure you know it would have taken their whole careers to write these books um but that but that uh, proves the point that it's like well it's not any less good writing like the writing's not any worse because they're independent scholar like it was still published by university press right now i'm kind of ranting i don't even know why <laughs>
0: <laughs> matt i liked your analogy in the paper that um even landing see, even even winning that lottery and becoming a faculty member in a tenure track is akin to lyle's conversation with oh, yeah. about fame not being an exit from any cage and that maybe like landing that job isn't an exit from a cage either <laughs>
1: sure i mean i mean it's just uh, when i when i think about sort of the stuff i was talking about earlier with fault starts occasional senses of failure like that is the the image that pops back into my mind just kind of reminding me mm-hmm. of. <laughs> and, it, and also it's just by its own rights i love that scene so much that whole yeah. conversation between lyle and lamont chu it's um, so good la- and and it's there's something that has always struck me about it as a little creepy because there's something about <laughs> Lyle that's a little creepy, but yeah, just um, a little. Yeah, but he's <laughs> but there's I think there's some wisdom in in the way you know why do you want to be on the cover of a tennis magazine, Lamont Chu? Well, and when he kind of realizes that he doesn't know if that will solve all of his problems, but he's sort of been led to think that maybe it might. Like that's kind of a, that's a, that's a big realization in that scene, I Mm -hmm, think. So mm -hmm. um, even if it's not a full realization, he's thinking about it. Yeah. I watch a lot of ATP
0: tennis, um, like during the majors, I'll have tennis on pretty much all day while I'm marking in the background. And I just, I just have, I think like probably almost every day while I'm watching tennis about that scene with Lyle and Lamont Chu. And I just think about like, what did it take for these athletes to make the show uh, how do they compare to the kids at Enfield? Um, is their experience of making it to the show as as life gratifying as they expected it to be? Like Lamont, you know, like the, yeah. the, was it was this an exit for them, or are they just uh, in a different cage now, or, or something that's affecting them? I'm so curious about that.
1: Yeah, and it and it just makes me think then about the the essays about um, you know what one must give up in terms of life experience yes. in order to sort of achieve that level. Like the essay about, um, Tracy Austin and the essay about, uh, about Michael Joyce. Like, yeah, I love those. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not a huge tennis guy. Like Dave, you know, way, way, way more about it than I do. I'm sure. But that, that question that just lingers yeah. after right of like yeah. what must they have given up in order to achieve this thing that in some cases like the the Tracy Austin, you know, winning the US Open like that is an achievement but then the other essay is so like focused on like that pain of being really good and yet still not good enough yes i mean <laughs> i mean i mean that's the that's the pain of like you know Getting an interview at MLA for a job (laughs) that, you know, there were 400 applications for and being like, "Okay, I was in their top 10. Like, let's do the math here. I was in their top 2.5 percent. And that's and that's not good enough. And so, yeah, it it resonates.
2: Yeah. And, and that speech, I felt like, you know, when I was reading it is really like, uh, or when I've reread it, maybe as well, like Wallace talking to himself. And there's oh, a yeah. lot of like, there's a lot of like pep talk stuff in there. And it's ultimately, I mean, it's pretty sad and that it's hard for adults, even if you understand the concept to sort of accept that or make sense of it. And, uh, it, to me, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but, um, it reminds me. There's a lot in the book about cages, you know, and the cage. Yeah, and that, I think that's you know that's some of uh, James Enkardenza's films, mm-hmm. which is, some of it is a derivative of this um, 1947 Sidney Peterson film called The Cage, which mm-hmm. you can you can find on YouTube. We should probably link to it. It's okay. so out of this world, crazy looking, oh. um, and, and that that idea that there is even like you know, a cage. I think that a lot of that, uh, you know, an in infinite is tied up with addiction. And we talked about it in that yeah. context, um, where once, you know, he's he, there's that big line where he's like, once, you know, they've got you and then you're free mm-hmm. and to be free from the cage. And in, in the book is a lot of like being free from addiction, but that's where it gets like Buddhist, right. Where it's like you're free <laughs> from, you're free from like wants and needs yeah. and like, Uh, you know what are you really free from and you know when you um put that line in your paper i was like well i totally agree and i was like boom yeah that 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 is a huge thing but it's like what are you really free from and really what are you free from there in that context i think is something like associating your accomplishments or success in life with any kind of happiness Mm
1: yeah um do either of y'all know uh Bird by Bird, the Annie Lamott book about
2: writing. I, I, I have read it, yes. Yeah. It. And there's, I'm a big bird person, so, you know, that's like required there's reading. This, <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's this chapter in it on publication. And, and Lamott talks about how um, every once in a while when she's teaching a class, teaching a writing workshop, on, like, the third or fourth day, someone will ask her, so how do you get an agent? And, and, and she sort of reminds them, whoa, hold on, like, you got to do the work first. And then she also reminds them, publication is not a thing that that will make you that will make you feel like you were a success. Um mm-hmm. And she I, this is the funniest, weirdest move that she makes in this essay. She quotes the movie Cool Runnings about the Jamaican <laughs> bobsled team. Awesome. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen this since I was like eight or whatever. But the line she quotes, because this is stuck with me, is evidently there's a character who says to one of the athletes in that movie, um, if you it's something to the effect of like, if you don't feel like you're enough without the gold medal, you won't feel like you're enough with it. And it's exactly the same idea as like the, as, as the Lamanchu thing as yeah, famous, yeah. not the exit from any cage.
2: Yeah.
1: And, and, and that, that idea is out there. It's, it shows up in some surprising places evidently.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's so true. And I mean, uh, what you're shedding light on at this conference, I think is uh, important to, for other people who are in that audience to hear uh, someone like yourself, who's a published author to stand up and uh, you know, you have been through the rigors of academia and to, to give your personal story like this is so valuable because you never know where someone else is going to, um, you know, learn that lesson, whether it's in a book or in a paper or in a speech, however they're going to hear it. I, I think it's important to say it. So I, wa- I wanted to bring you on the show partly to say thank you for, mm-hmm. for giving that paper. Yeah, absolutely. Oh,
1: well, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad people enjoyed it. I was, mm-hmm. I was really, um, surprised and I was really touched by, by a couple <laughs> comments that I've gotten from people. So it,
0: cool.
2: it was nice. Well, and it's, it's, uh, you know, a, a type of critical work in itself that, um, I want more of. And I felt like, you know, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you was like, you know, I wanted more of your paper. So you had a lot of like setting it up and you have time constraint in the, in the panel. But like, if you mentioned something about the cutting room floor, like where else would you have gone with this paper? um this idea
1: i mentioned the name Rita felski who uh is uh, just a, a year and a half two years ago this book the limits of critique of hers that's just come out and has made a big splash um the last issue of pmla had a, a round table about it um which uh her her whole argument is that for for decades there's been um, the assumption that like good literary criticism is somehow an act of critique um, you are because it involves making the argument ultimately that that text doesn't mean what you think it says. And, and that's so a lot of stuff that is working from like a Marxian play Marxist place or Freudian or or coming out of Foucault is doing that kind of work. And she's sort of pushing back and saying, but hang on we have moments in our reading lives in which texts mean exactly what they say they mean to us. Um, and I think Wallace lends itself to discussion along this line. Uh, a lot of what Felsky talking about, the, the sort of new-ish term that is coming up for it is post-critical criticism, mm. criticism that isn't coming from critique, suspicion, of a text, but instead is trying to sort of remain open to the idea that a text might change me and might move me. And so um, I think Wallace lends itself really well to this. I mean, think about the way uh, Westward the Course ends with You are Loved. It's an attempt to speak really directly and make an emotional reaction happen in a reader and, and kind of encourage a reader to be moved and to let a reader's guard and for the reader to let his guard down a little bit. Um, so I'm gonna, I, I sort of think this is maybe the next step on that paper is, um, seeing what else is out there with the Rita uh, sort of line of thought and, and doing what I can to, um, see what it looks like to read Wallace specifically sort of through that kind of lens that, that asks what happens to us as readers when we, when we let a text sort of, when when we choose not to approach it with that kind of detachment that we talked about a while ago and instead say, this thing could move me, it could change me, it could force me to rethink some assumptions. These are, Experiences that I think readers of Wallace often have. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people I've heard talk about, you know, yeah, Infinite Jest kind of altered the way I understand what addiction is and the way I interact with people who I know have that history. Mm -hmm. That's a deeply valuable thing that that book does that doesn't really land the same way if you approach it from that place of skepticism or detachment yeah yeah Hmm.
0: matt how do you see uh these ideas from the writers that you cite in this paper in relation to the bell hooks idea that the personal is political how do you see that fitting in with your argument
1: um man okay Uh, (laughs) well i mean it definitely fits with the um the the academic labor side of it, that sort of the, the yeah. personal, I mean, I mean, a critic is always writing from, you know, a lived reality that is defined by certain things like wealth, status, cultural capital, so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd have to give that, I'd have to, uh, I'd have to give this a little more thought. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there's definitely, or a little more thought to like, get the idea fully formulated as clearly as I would want. <laughs>
0: mm, yeah. Cause it's kind of in the same, it's in the same vein, right. But it would take the conversation in, in maybe like a slightly different direction.
1: I think so. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. There's something very political to like the, the Jane Tompkins line of thought since she is saying, you know, this is since for her doing that kind of autobiographical criticism is very much a feminist act. Right, um, yeah because she, she understands, uh, more traditional criticism to, to be patriarchal. Mm -hmm. So, so that's definitely there. I'd have to think through a little more sort of the, um, how, how you originally phrased it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cool.
2: Well, Hey Matt, earlier, I want to go back to something you mentioned about the, um, signifying rappers
1: oh oh boy okay uh, uh, <laughs> and uh, just
2: if, if people out there have never read the book could you um give them a reason why they should read that book
1: oh you're, man, you're, you're a major apologist for this for this work i i, I really coming. i really like it a lot um it is it is flawed in many ways it is it is dated in many ways and and <laughs> sure. and, and And Wallace admits that. He actually says, you know, like one of the dangers of writing about pop music is like between writing and publication, like it's going to be dated. That culture, you know, that culture moves so fast. Um, For one thing, going back to politics, it is Wallace writing in certain ways politically uh, way more than I think he gets credit for because it is, uh, I mean, the subtitle of the book is rap and race in the urban present. So he is thinking about a lot of things related to race in America in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, really directly. He is talking about, uh, Jesse Jackson's run for president. He is talking about, um, not just the crack epidemic, but the way that journalists were talking about the crack epidemic um, there uh, there's uh, there, at times his understanding of some of this stuff does come across as a little bit um, as a little naive uh, in that he kind of acknowledges at times his own well, there are times where he acknowledges the limitations of his of his whiteness. There are times when he he maybe could seem might we might want him to seem a little more aware of it, um, <laughs> but it is it is really energetic writing uh, that is giving him uh, giving us a, a a really early glimpse into him starting to think politically in his writing in in ways that I I don't know that he gets as much credit for in particularly in the early stuff. Um. Also just the energy of the writing. He admits that he, he you know, was really um, super, super influenced at the time when he and Mark Costello were writing it by Lester Bang's, you know, sort of <laughs> 70s wild man, rock and roll critic. Uh, and, and that influence is there. But it's also fun to see him sort of bringing those sort of prodigious powers of analysis To bear on something that we also got to remember, like in the late 80s, early 90s was still widely thought of as weird, scary, foreign, not to really be thought of academically, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So it's a little bit dated because in some ways it's maybe a little bit ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's also stuff that, you know, some of his predictions about what artists are going to continue to matter and who won't have not aged super well uh (laughs) do you remember what any of those are
2: schooly d (laughs) you
1: know there's the little moment where he he you know talks about how awful the bc boys are and then you have to like remind yourself oh wait okay like paul's boutique hadn't happened yet or it maybe just come out you know so Hmm. we'll cut him some slack on that one
2: (laughs) (laughs) but i i mean i think that's great and um I thing I also love about that book is you can tell he just had fun writing it. Yeah. And it it mm-hmm. was like, he had again, nothing to prove. It was just like him uh, and his buddy in their apartment and they're young and they're just writing their butts off, you know? It was yeah.
0: So That's yeah, cool.
1: And it, you know, it, it reminds me of like music nerd conversations that I have had with, with music nerd friends where, like, you're, you're talking for one minute about, you know, Elvis Costello, and then wait, suddenly, how are we on economic policy of the 80s? Like how did we get there? Uh-huh. But yeah. somehow we did. And, and there you go. Like, that's that's how these conversations can go. I yeah, know.
2: That's, that's so, I mean, that, very few books capture that, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: I'll say, yeah. too, about it, that uh, not only is the writing energetic, but for me, the reading of it was energetic because... The nature of that book is that it was so hard to find for so long being out of print that's true yeah and like if you wanted to find a copy of it it was like 300 on amazon <laughs> and i just remember or like 150 on amazon i remember thinking like i might never get to read this book and that is soul crushing because you know i've read everything wallace has written and i to to know that there's something he wrote that exists that i can't read like i don't have access to is just a very despairing feeling. So when it got announced that it was being reprinted, I was just, I was so relieved and, and so excited to read it for, because of that long drought.
1: Oh yeah. Particularly Mm -hmm. something published that was out. That was difficult to get your hands on for a while there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And it's like, how has no one even like scanned a PDF of this? Like I can't (laughs) find anything, you know, like give me a bootleg or something.
2: I mean, I I go back a little farther than you guys in this game. I do, I know. And I I remember when that book um, was still in print for sure. I bought it at the Virgin Mega Store that was in Union Square in Manhattan. And. Uh, there were copies of it in the Strand for years that no one would buy. Oh, wow. it was like they, they they just wanted you know Infinite Jest or or maybe a supposedly fun thing. Right. Uh, so it's it was interesting to see. I understood why it went out of print because it definitely did not sell hmm. um, until really it was not brought back into print until after he died. You know, and his yep. celebrity was like raised. That's right. Um, Due to a number of other reasons. So mm-hmm. yeah, that, that was an inter- interesting, um, okay. I, I remember it was first published as an excerpt in the Missouri Review, uh, which is an odd choice. And I found that excerpt <laughs> uh, uh, has nothing to do with anything, right? I don't know how they got it. It's a good, I mean, it's a good magazine. It's a good publication, but um, they published like probably 20, 30 page epi- uh, excerpt of the book uh, before the book came out and um, I remember getting that from again an academic library because where else are you going to get the Missouri review <laughs> in, 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 in like 1992 or whatever I mean, there was like no way you're going to find this journal um, unless you have an academic library and I remember uh, I did have a Xerox of it because I, I was not going to you know, I had no other way to get it out of the library physically, mm-hmm. pre-internet, than to xerox it. So yeah. somewhere I should upload it to the internet. <laughs> the, the Missouri Review version of it. <laughs> well, well, thank I, you.
1: It, it's re- uh, it's cool too that we're getting we're starting to get in a little bit of of scholarly work on it. I mean, Lucas Thompson's bit right. on it in his book is is pretty solid. I uh, mm. I like to see people are talking about
2: it. Oh, it's fantastic.
0: Did you guys, by the way, see what Lucas Thompson's paper was on at Oz Wallace?
2: Nathan for you. It was on Nathan for you, <laughs> Nathan which, for you. which we talked about. I about you, Dave. <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: He sent it to me before the conference and I, I got to read it because I was just so excited that someone not only would like make that connection and want to like talk about it over a beer, but then also like write a scholarly paper on it and present it at a conference I just, like I I was just floored. So high five to Lucas for taking my favorite TV show and connecting it <laughs> to my favorite literary
1: uh, <laughs> the world. That's great. Um, yeah, it's almost like you have some personal aesthetic day for this. is it's all. Dark,
0: it's almost. Yeah, I actually <laughs> almost went to Vancouver last night to see Nathan Fielder uh, do a live presentation of the upcoming season. Uh, a bunch of friends and i were like slated to go and buy tickets and it turned out that the hidden fees were like 40 uh 40 percent of the actual ticket price so like almost uh it, it made them too expensive so we all just decided not to go but um season four starts this month and we're gonna talk about it in the year in review episode i'm sure matt so so prepare for that <laughs>
2: All right, man. I'll get, I'll get ready for that. <laughs> I'll send you,
0: I'll send you some links.
2: All right. <laughs> um, I think we're uh, approaching the um, the end of the show here. The Matt, do you have any, segment? any final thoughts for us?
1: Uh, Dave, are we going to talk about our summer reading?
0: Yeah, I was going to say like, uh, that would be a good way to end off that I want to give you uh, a massive props for what you did this summer and, Uh, For everybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, which is probably everybody uh, at at the conference, (laughs) Matt Matt really wanted me to commit to reading Great Jones Street by Don DeLillo, which for me, like, no problem, love DeLillo. I've read everything he's written from white noise to present, but nothing before. And so Matt was like, dude, you got to read Great Jones Street. And then you said, but I also really want to read The Instructions by Adam Levin, And so I'll make you the deal that if I read the instructions this summer, you read Great Jones Street. And I was like, done. That's super easy. No problem. Which (laughs) perhaps we
1: should clarify, like, is, you know, a slightly lopsided bargain.
0: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Great Jones Street is probably like one fifth, one sixth of the length of the instructions. Um, And if you've ever seen the instructions, it's published by McSweeney's. Uh, the size of the book, it's quite a bit bigger than Infinite Jest in terms of its physical dimension. Um, it's not as dense. Uh, the text on the page is more spread out. The page count is slightly less, but it, it looks like a, a massive encyclopedia on your shelf.
1: And it's, it's mostly chronological. It is not as dense a read as Infinite Jest, but it is, it is huge. <laughs> yes,
0: it, it is very intimidating.
1: Um, and uh, and and I'm joking about the lopsided bargain thing because <laughs> you know because because it was it was a blast of a read. Um, oh,
0: good! I'm glad you liked it.
1: Um, and and uh, and I'm glad that you you dug uh, Great Tone Street. So yeah,
0: you know what? You could have actually added like three more books to that deal, and I would <laughs> <laughs> just to make it more proportional.
1: <laughs> well, and I and I did sort of have this sort of semi-summer semi-project of the summer of, of of summer of mega novels i started out the summer Dude. saying that i was just gonna read large novels mm-hmm. um because it's hard to read those during a school year i tend to read like story collections and poetry uh yeah. during a school and like, year and you're also
0: like keeping an eye out for material that you can use in the classroom like that's exactly
1: really my experience as a high school teacher yeah Exactly, and so um, I, I started out. I'm just going to read large novels that I've been putting off, but really want to read. And then I realized that's kind of insane. Like you need <laughs> you need palate cleansers in there. And so I did some. I did read some big books. I read uh, uh, an American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser, um, and and then I did uh, the Instructions. And then I read uh, Oh, Matt, so my first Bologna mm. movie. I mean, I read oh, which. Uh, Savage Detectives. Detectives, yeah, which yeah. which definitely wet the appetite. I, I'm, <laughs> I am I am wanting more. Um, and then I threw it out there to Twitter. I said, you know, Twitter, choose my uh, my next mega novel. And um, yeah, William Gas, twenty
0: six
1: sixty six. No, the vote was Gass. William Gass's The Tunnel, which I have you read this, Matt.
2: Uh, I've tried about three times man it is it is a beast
1: <sighs> i is I am a trying. little over I am a little over a third in and there are beautiful lyrical passages about growing up in the midwest and like there's a beautiful passage about like the joy of getting an ice cream cone as a kid.
0: <laughs> I still experience that joy on a weekly basis. <laughs>
1: And then there's uh, I mean, also really difficult passages that have made it a, a, a slow and difficult read. But I'm uh, but I'm pushing through.
0: Even in the school year, you're pushing. That's that's impressive, man.
1: As best I can, in fits and starts. Very commendable. No, y- y'all must have both had this experience with books before, of just like this thing will not beat me,
2: dude. Uh, <laughs> I'm in I'm in the midst of that with Bottom's dream. Oh, oh god, yeah. Bottom's really dream. <laughs> that is
1: nuts, Matt I can't beat that. Uh,
2: it's gonna be. I mean, it'll take me my whole life. Um, It'd be an enjoyable battle to lose, but um, <laughs> I, I've been working on, off and on on that thing for about six months, mm-hmm. and I'm maybe like I'm not a hundred pages into it, and it's like I don't know, twenty five hundred pages, something oh, ridiculous, and it's Gosh. and
1: it's like the size of it's the size of the coffee
2: table, right? Yeah, it's it's. I, if you, they dropped it on your front porch, it would sound like an atomic bomb. <laughs> I, I mean, that, th- that thing weighs, I think, about 20 pounds. It's ridiculous. What's the MSRP
0: uh, on that book? Uh, I think it's
2: like <laughs> 50, 50, 60 bucks. I mean, it's not bad. I, I hope yeah, that they. Yeah, that's
0: surprisingly it, low.
2: I hope that they issue it in paperback soon in like some kind of a multi-volume set or something, but mm-hmm. um, it is one of those ones also written in like an obsolete vernacular, <laughs> like so, some of the Volman or P- Pinchin, and you know, it's very hard to parse uh-huh. um, uh, occasionally. And It's also got like the annotations throughout and multiple columns. You yeah, know, so. yeah. You're like, oh, shit, do I read one page and then go back and read the other column notes? And then, yeah, you know, it's, it's an exercise. But um, Matt, if you do finish the tunnel, like, come back and tell us, like, what, what is it really about? Because I don't know.
1: <laughs> um, I'm about 200 pages, about, I'm about 200 and 250 maybe pages in. And somewhere around 150 to 160, he started digging the tunnel.
0: Oh, wow. He's digging a tunnel. Okay. Yeah, well, well, the whole concept of it.
1: Sure. I mean, mean the the whole concept of it is the um, narrator is a historian of of Nazi Germany. And Mm -hmm. he has written this enormous treatise that is his life's work. And the novel you're reading is ostensibly the introduction Mm -hmm. to that book. And it takes on a life of its own. And becomes a 650-page novel with all of these reminiscences of childhood. And he's digging a tunnel. And we will find out why in the next two-thirds.
0: <laughs> Do you remember what year this book came out in?
1: Uh, in the 90s. 90s? Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the it's the maximalist age, right? Mid-90s. Mm. That's when they all happened. These sure, encyclopedic yeah. Under, novels. Underworld. Not all of them, Infinite but yeah. 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 Mason and Dixon. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right.
2: Also written in a sort of obsolete vernacular. Yeah, <laughs> All right, I'm going to give a shout out to two books that I read this summer and then I'm going to say peace out. Uh, one is I think has some parallels with Infinite Jest uh, hasn't really been explored yet. Uh, and that is Gabe Haybash's book, Stephen, Florida, which is set at a kind of Midwestern college. And it's about a wrestler who is determined to. Win the championship, and so there's a lot about kind of the sports and athletics and wrestling. Like tennis is a solo sport, like it's mm-hmm. an individual sport. Um, and I also read uh, the novel by Gabe's wife, Julie Bunton, called Marlena, which is totally different, but is one of the most like affecting novels I have ever read. Hmm. At, like period ever and uh i i read it to my wife i gave it to my wife after i finished it she loved it as well so i highly recommend uh marlena by julie bunton and um Stephen florida by gabe haybash hmm.
0: cool have you guys read uh the sellout by paul Beatty? yeah yeah i just finished that last week and i i posted a picture of a particular page from it on our instagram that mentions our man dfw
2: yeah i want to i want to go back and read that um i I think he's uh, a fantastic writer i have not read that sellout though yeah it's good just it just came out like last year right
0: yeah and it won the, the man booker prize right uh my thesis supervisor emailed me out of the blue about it um and i hadn't heard from him in quite a while and he was like hey have you read this book i just read it there's references to wallace in it you would dig it. And I was like, cool. So I ordered it right away. I read it. It's quite <laughs> funny. Yeah. It's it's kind of like a political satire on uh, race relations in the U.S.
1: I read it about a year and a half ago while I was actually chaperoning a trip <laughs> at, my, at, my, at my previous school. Uh, okay. The school I was working at before I moved back to Jackson. And the number of times that... I laughed out loud at it and mm-hmm. then a student asked me what's so funny and then I kind of had to pause and say like <laughs> yeah I'm ju- I'm just not sure that explaining <laughs> it would be this particular joke to- <laughs>
0: would
1: be you know not because it's a super naughty joke but because like we it would probably have has to- the n-word in it God. Well, or we would have to like, then follow it up like right now with like a, uh, you know, very long and probably quite awkward conversation <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that would get, that would get political, that would get real, real fast. Yes. Um, but, but that's, absolutely. that's what, uh, oh gosh, that is a, I laughed out loud so often at that book. Yeah. Yeah, In ways funny. that kind of are uncomfortable and make you wonder if you're supposed to be laughing, but yeah, uh or yeah. or if yeah. Or if the laughs are okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Spoken like a Nathan for you fan, Dave. Mm-hmm. There it is.
2: So Matt, uh if people want to uh follow you or keep up with your work, where can they find you online?
1: Sure. Um I I am using Twitter way more frequently these days. I, I remember when you, when y'all had me on after the the conference last year, and I was like, I sort of am on Twitter, <laughs> yeah,
2: but uh, I'm
1: right. I'm at uh, at Matthew J Luter, M A T T H E W J L U T E R. Um, that's probably best way. Or you know, go to the uh, the society site and uh, where there are bios of all of us. There, yes, there's you are contact. A board and, member there's contact info uh for all of us there and you know i'm there
0: fantastic are you uh is there a place where people can get a hold of some of your academic work matt in like you Um, have an academia.edu page that has some logged stuff
1: i do not have an academia edu i can you know may as well throw out the little the little plug for understanding jonathan lethem uh on the Mm -hmm. the, uh it's on University of South Carolina Press, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it came out in 2015. And if you're into into Lethem at all, I hope you enjoy it. Um, but yeah, uh, we'll have some Wallace stuff out in the near future in the um, the MLA Approaches to Teaching volume that is coming oh, yeah. together. Great. Also, um, I think y'all have mentioned on the show before Ralph Clare is editing the Cambridge Companion. Uh, to right, Wallace yeah, I think we and, and I'm gonna have a piece in there I've got uh, the chapter that is taken on Girl with Curious Hair and uh, Broom of the System So
0: awesome cool Yeah, that is great um, Matt Booker where can people get in touch with us
2: we are at Concavity Show on Twitter and on Instagram and you can always email us concavityshow at gmail.com
0: you bet uh, we want to thank as always Robin O'Neill for letting us use her piece for our icon the band Park at Courts for their song Instant Disassembly and Matt Luder we want to thank you so much for coming on to episode 31 and talking about the conference and your work and specifically your paper and we appreciate uh, so much your input into this community and to the society and also just your friendship you are just a cool dude to hang out with and to know. So, thanks again for coming on.
1: Well, back at both of y'all. I, this was this was a lot of fun, and you know, it's it is such a good reading community to be part yeah, of. It's truly. it's yeah.
0: And and you have the best cybruns I know of anyone. So keep rocking those. I,
1: I I I do what I can. I try. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Boy, <laughs> all right, go watch some jeopardy. Typically, what'll happen now is it'll take me around a week or so to edit Um, I'll try and get it faster this time just because it's been so long since we put out an episode Um, but when it's done I'll send it back to you guys you can listen to it and if there's anything that you want changed or cut or whatever let me know and then I can do that
2: and then we'll put it out in the world we'll we'll edit this down to about 25 minutes
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good to you?
1: (laughs) hey you know whatever I'm
0: just kidding (laughs)